Well, it's good to be with you today. It really is a great joy to worship with you and to get to know some of you. And it's always a special privilege, wherever we are, to open God's Word. And I'd invite you to do that. Open to 1 Thessalonians 1. And please stand as I read this text. I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 10. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. Remember as I read and as you follow along reading and listening, this is the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, let's pray together. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We would be in the dark if You had not revealed Yourself to us in it. Uh, We thank You that Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank You for the great promises that attend to the reading and especially the preaching of Your Word. Promises that Your Spirit will wield His sword and will wield it to our hearts, piercing even to the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Father, We ask that you might do this in our midst right now as we open and sit under your word. Please convict us of sin and train us in righteousness and glorify your son. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There are a number of moments in the Bible where there are dramatic statements made either to individuals or sometimes to groups of people where they are confronted with an unexpected reality, sometimes a very troubling reality. One of the ones that stands out most prominently is Nathan's encounter with King David in the Old Testament. You remember that David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had had Bathsheba's husband murdered, and he seemed to have gotten away with it. It seemed as if no one was going to find out, but Nathan the prophet came to him, and he told David a little story, a little parable. And it was a parable about a man who had a little single sheep and then another rich man who took that and slaughtered it. And David was irate and indignant about this injustice. And Nathan pointed at David at that great moment of dramatic tension and said, David, you are the man. You're that man in this story. And David, of course, was confronted with his sin and broken and repented before God. 
We see this sometimes happen to groups of people as well. There's a wonderful account in 1 Kings 22 of a great prophet named Micaiah ben Imla, Micaiah son of Imla. And Micaiah was faced with a situation where he was being asked to prophesy something about Israel and about an upcoming battle that Israel was going to engage in. And he, he was faced with the fact that all the other prophets gave Israel good news, said that the battle would go well, but he himself knew that the battle would not go well. And so initially he tries to find a way to go along with the other prophets, but then ultimately the king challenges him and says, no, this, is, this isn't what the Lord has said. Tell me what the Lord has actually said. And Micaiah, in that group of all these hundreds of prophets, false prophets, says, I saw all Israel scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And it's a moment of great dramatic tension. Now, there's something like that as well in the New Testament. We see God do this with individuals. We might think, for instance, of Luke 12, where he confronts this rich man who's building barns to store his excess wealth. And he's confronted by the Lord, and the Lord says, You fool, this very night your life will be required of you. Similarly to a church. And this should haunt us from Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is speaking to the church in Sardis, and he says this to that church, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And what effect that word, those words must have had on that church when they heard it. Everyone else thinks you're a living church, but you're actually a dead church. Now there is a sense in which the actual inverse of that is being said to this church in Thessalonica. Because Paul, in 1 Thessalonians, is writing to a church. Scholars don't know how large this congregation was. Many estimate that it was between 20 and 30 people. We don't know for sure, but we know it was a small, fledgling congregation in Thessalonica. And Paul's writing to this small, fledgling church that was undergoing great suffering. If you had asked the people in Thessalonica, they would have said, we're just hanging on by a thread. The church in Sardis thought it was alive, but it was really dead. And the church in Thessalonica might have had reason to question its viability, to question whether it was alive at all. But look at what the Apostle Paul says. I just want to point out a couple of verses to show you what he says Look at verse 4. We know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. In fact, what Paul says right at the outset of this letter to this church is you are very much a living church chosen by God. And he cites a number of reasons why he has that kind of confidence in their, in their life, in their vibrancy, in their vitality as a church. And that's what I want to focus on this morning, but I want us to think about this question. If, if someone were to come to you and to say, demonstrate to me that this church is a living church, is a true church of Jesus Christ, how would you answer them? Many churches, if they're asked that question, would cite the programs that they have or the long history that they've enjoyed. Perhaps the budget that they annually meet, or the buildings in which they meet. All those things are the kinds of things that we cite in our culture today to prove 
that this is a living church. But Paul cites none of those things when he says to the Thessalonians, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Well, I want to give a little background of this church, and then we'll look more closely at the text. We read about the beginning of this church in Acts chapter 17. And in Acts 17, it is an inauspicious beginning because the Apostle Paul, along with his companion Silas, goes into Thessalonica. They begin, as they always do, trying to reason with the, the, the members of the synagogue. They're kicked out of the synagogue. It says that they were able to reason with them for three Sabbaths in a row, but then after that they're ejected. But they're not just ejected from the synagogue. They're actually brought up on charges. They're brought. They're, there's a mob that's begun, that's instigated in Thessalonica. They've been meeting in a, in a man named Jason's house after being kicked out of the synagogue. And and, and the leaders of the synagogue drag Jason before the magistrate and they're going to have him arrested. And it looks as if Paul and Silas are probably going to be killed if they stay there. And so after just a very short period of time, the, the persecution was so great and so intense that Paul and Silas have to sneak out of the city in the middle of the night or else they'll be killed. And that leaves the believers in Thessalonica to deal with that persecution. And if you want to know what that persecution was like, this afternoon you can go and read 2 Thessalonians because what Paul does is he outlines the intense persecution that they're still undergoing when 1 Thessalonians is written and even when 2 Thessalonians is written. This was a church that was under duress. We talk today about being a church in a hostile culture and there, there are many senses in which our culture is very hostile to the gospel, but the Thessalonian culture was directly opposed. And they, they were under threat to their lives for naming the name of Christ. And as I said, a small group, a beleaguered group, a group that faced upstream cultural opposition at every turn. And yet, look at this. When we get into the text, Paul says things like in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. And he then says, we know, loved by God, that he has chosen you, verse 4. And then in verse 7, he even says this, not only are you a living church, you're actually an exemplary church. Look at verse 7. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Imagine that. The Apostle Paul writes to this church, this church that's struggling in so many ways, and he not only tells them, you're alive, you're chosen by God, every time I go to God in prayer, I thank Him for you, but actually, you're an example to all the other churches. I point to you when I'm in other cities, and they point to you without me even having to say a word. He says that in verse 8. We need not say anything, because everyone knows of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does this grown-up living church look like? How can Paul say this? I want to look first at verses 1 through 3 to see a snapshot of the church in Thessalonica, a snapshot of a grown-up living church. What does he cite? Well, first of all, he cites their identity. In verse 1, he, said, he, he identifies them as the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they were founded quite clearly by God. Paul doesn't look at the beginning of the Thessalonian church and say, you're a product of my work. You're a product of 
my technique or my uh, study, demographic study. He doesn't say any of that. What he says is, you, you owe your identity. Your identity is formed and fastened to the fact that you were founded by God the Father and you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I wonder if you just stop and think about it. Is that what you know to be true about this congregation? Is that how you identify a living church? First and foremost, this is a church that is founded by God and centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it clear in your practice, in how you operate, in how you tell the story of your church, that this is a divine work, a supernatural work of the triune God? Well, that ought to be at the forefront of our description of ourselves as Christians individually and our description of the church. I wonder if someone even asked you personally about your personal story. Not just the story of the church, but the story of you as an individual. Would you, would you go here first and say fundamentally, fundamentally what you need to know is that God has changed me and that I'm united to Jesus Christ through faith. I wonder if I asked you as you walked in the door, what does it mean to be a Christian? Would you say something like this? What it means is I'm in Jesus Christ and God the Father has done a work in me. This is not because of anything that I've brought to the table or anything that I myself have done, but it's what God has done in and through me, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how did that play out in their lives? Again, the snapshot continues in verses 2 and 3 because Paul says, I thank God all the time for you. And then he, and then he shows their practice and how their practice reflects the divine origin that they had as he records it in verse 1. Look at what he says in verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this might sound somewhat familiar because Paul uses it elsewhere. Paul will frequently speak of faith, hope, and love as encompassing what it means to behave and act as a Christian. We're people of faith that as we have confidence in the word of God, We trust what God has said. We bank on what God has said. Even though we can't see some of the things that He says in His Word, we we know them to be true because He said them in His Word. We're people of hope. That is, we have confident expectations about the future. And those confident expectations about the future are banking on what God has said in His Word. And then we're people of love. That is, because of what God has done in us, we sacrificially love one another. And Paul outlines all of these things in 1 Corinthians 13. But I want to break it down a little bit because Paul uses that triad, although he puts it in a slightly different order. He says faith, love, and hope. But look at how he describes it. He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. Why does he say that? We know that faith itself isn't a work. We're leaning on and trusting in the promises of God in Christ. That's what it means to have a living faith. But what Paul's getting at here is the fact that the things that they do, the work in which they engage as a church, is what could rightly be called a work of faith because the work that they do is based on the Word of God. In other words, they're not starting things. They're not doing activities 
just because they somehow think they might be valuable. No, all that they do, everything that they engage in as a church, whether it's their public worship or or the way in which they interact throughout the rest of the week, all those things are grounded and rooted in the Word of God. Paul says, you know, that's the mark of a living church. That your work is a work of faith. You're trusting in the means that God has given. You're trusting in the word that God is giving. You're, you're building everything in your church life as your church grows. You're building everything on, on what the Bible says. Oh, Paul says, I'm so thankful for your work of faith. And then he goes on to cite their labor of love. And I love the realism that's behind that. Because, you know, at every point in the New Testament, when the Bible tells us to love one another, it recognizes that that doesn't always come easily. In fact, it's often the last thing we want to do. You know, I'm struck in the book of Ephesians. Have you ever noticed this in Ephesians? After Paul outlines those great glories of the gospel in chapters 1 through 3, then in chapter 4, he begins by saying, you need to walk worthy of this high calling to which you've been called in Christ. And if you read carefully, what he says walking worthy looks like is it looks like how you engage with one another. In other words, Paul doesn't say you need to walk worthy and therefore you need to do certain individual things. No, he speaks of their corporate life together. And Paul's very clear and very realistic in that chapter as he is here about the fact that that often takes effort. Isn't it the case that loving one another is, in in a real sense, a labor of love. Paul, at the end of Ephesians 4, puts it this way, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. This church, this Thessalonian church, was very much alive. Everything they did was based on the Word of God. And they worked hard at loving one another as Christ had loved them. And then he ends with this. He looks to the future and talks about their steadfastness of hope. They had confidence in God's future promises, even in the midst of difficulties. You know, one of the problems we face in life, one of the most desperate situations we can find ourselves in, is a situation in which we we forget what God has said about the future. We begin to despair and we begin to enter into a kind of hopeless existence. We think nothing's ever going to change. Uh, These these days that I'm experiencing, these challenges I'm facing are never going to end. But the Bible is clear for Christians that there is a day in which every tear will be wiped from our eyes. There is a day in which God will make all things right. There is a day in which even the sin in which we can get so easily entangled and in which we we find ourselves frustrated will be done away with as we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He really is. The Bible speaks of a day, the day of resurrection, when those who are in Christ will be openly vindicated before the world by Jesus. Not because of anything good that we have done, but according to his own mercy. And these Thessalonians were being tested. They were being tried. And Paul says, I know you're alive because of your steadfastness of hope. 
Now, what did the birth of this church look like? One of the ways in which we think about the beginning of life is to think about new birth. And Paul does that here. He gives a snapshot of where they are right now. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he, he, he goes back in time to talk about their birth. And their birth itself shows evidence that they are a living church. Look at what he says in verse 5. We know, love, beloved by God, that he's chosen you. Why? Verse 5. Because... Our gospel came to you, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now look, it's something that is almost uh, axiomatic. It's always true of living churches. Living churches respond to the word of God. Uh, Living churches are fed by God's word. And Paul says that was true of you from the very beginning. In fact, we could tell that God was at work and that God had chosen you from before the foundation of the world. And the reason we could tell was not because we could see into the secret counsels of God and determine his election, but because of the way you responded to the word of God. When the word of God was opened in front of you, when we began to proclaim God's word, you listened and you understood it and you saw it for what it was, which was the word of God. And many of you, many of you could probably recall a moment in your life where that became very real to you. You're reading your Bible or you're sitting under preaching and and, and something clicked in your mind. You said, you know, this is true. This is not simply one man's opinion. This is actually God's word. And I need to treat it as God's word. And I need to sit under it as God's word. And I need to obey it because it's God's word. And that is a mark of a true Christian. And that is a mark of a living church. You know, Paul describes this even further in the next chapter in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, we thank God constantly for this. Constantly. We can't get this out of our minds. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. And that's what he's saying in verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. If a church stops listening to the Bible, if a church begins to filter out parts of the Bible that it no longer considers relevant, or that it wishes were not part of the Scriptures, once that begins to happen, death begins to set in. Because in separating the church from the Bible, there is a sense in which you are separating the people of God from God Himself. This has been something that we see from the earliest chapters of Scripture. How did God create the heavens and the earth? In Genesis chapter 1, He created it by His Word. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to do the work of God. And therefore, one of the marks of the church of God is its obedience and reception to God's holy Word. No matter how alive a church may appear, no matter how active it is, how many people are gathered, how large their budget or or, or, or large their building, no matter 
what outward things you see, if the Word of God is not present, and this is not a living church at all. Now, you know individually, you know what parts of the Bible present difficulties for you. You know the questions you don't want people to ask you about your Christian faith. Oh, you're a Christian. Well, do you actually believe in heaven and hell? Oh, you're a Christian. Does that mean that you have these kinds of outdated views of sexuality and gender? You know the areas that that rub against the culture today. And it is always a temptation of the church in every age to downplay, to fail to preach, to fail to heed, to not want to talk about those parts of the Word of God. But what's a living church? A living church is one that receives the Word in the Holy Spirit with full conviction that this is God's Word. And as you grow in God's Word and grow in understanding of it, you grow in such a way that you You know that whatever it teaches you, however it changes you, whatever repentance needs to take place in your life, you're committed to it. You're fully convinced by the Holy Spirit that this is God's Word. And you notice, too, that Paul's preaching and his example was one that they followed. Because as as this new church was born, and these... People moved from death to life, from serving idols to serving the living God, and they understood the Word of God for what it was. Then they looked for examples, because that's what new babies do. They're looking around and seeing, how is it that I can grow, and what am I supposed to be doing, and how am I supposed to speak, and how am I supposed to act? And that's what this church did. He said, once you understood that this was the Word of God, then you also looked to us and became imitators of us, just as we imitate the Lord. That's a very natural part of Christian growth. It's a very natural part of the living church. It's why the example set by elders and ministers is so vitally important. It's why the New Testament focuses on that. Because yes, of course, we have to be proclaiming the Word of God, but also there are those who are going to be imitators of us, and this Thessalonian church imitated Paul and of the Lord. But look at the second half of verse 6. Because I want to show you how the church really grew. Now, there's all kinds of literature on church growth today. The vast majority of it isn't biblical at all. But look at what this says at the end of verse 6. Paul talks about their growth. He's talked about their birth. But now he speaks of their growth. And here's what he says. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Notice that. Much affliction. Notice that this for Paul is not a sign of failure. It's a sign of success. It's not a sign of death, it's a sign of life. That they faced affliction, and they faced it with joy, and they just kept getting faced with affliction after affliction after affliction. And yet, they met that affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. Would that be something that people would testify regarding you? Oh, he's gone through so many challenges... She's faced one thing after another, but faced it with joy. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, continuing to trust in the Word of God. Well, we know something about 
the suffering that they endured, but suffering can take different forms in different times. But look at what the fruit was of their suffering with joy. Verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. How churches and how individual Christians face difficulties is not just a sign of their own life. It's actually a way in which God uses the gospel to go forth in the world. These churches in Macedonia and Achaia looked over at Thessalonica, looked at all the things they were struggling with, and they learned what God required of them through watching the Thessalonians. They were encouraged that the gospel is really true because, you know, that's what happens. When you see someone persevere in suffering and continue to hang on tight to the promises of God, you realize these promises are true. These promises actually bring life. And strength, they actually help you endure. They, they give you answers in the midst of terrible crises and terrible problems. That's exactly what happened in Thessalonica. Paul says these other churches looked to you and you became an example to them. But look at this in verse 8. I want you to notice this. They didn't rest simply on that. They didn't say, well, our method of evangelism is simply suffering and enduring. And that's going to be an example to others, and maybe somehow they'll learn something about Jesus through that. Well, that, that did happen in some measure. But it wasn't just that. The word of the Lord, it says, sounded forth from you. So what were these Thessalonians doing? They were, they were sharing God's word with other people. They were evangelizing their neighbors. They were talking to their friends. They were, they were speaking to family members. They were eager to share the word of God with anyone that they had contact with. That's a sign of life. And then then compounding that, they're, they're speaking the word of God whenever they have an opportunity. And other people are watching them suffer and trust in the word of God. And that is a powerful and potent combination. Maybe maybe God isn't taking you through affliction now. Why would you have every opportunity to speak the word of God? And as you speak the word of God, and then the Lord takes you through the circumstances of life, and you demonstrate that his word is enough in the midst of that, and his spirit will sustain you in the midst of that, then the words that you speak have special power. And in this case, your faith in God, he says in verse 8, has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. You see, Paul and Silas had a number of cities on their list that they needed to visit. And what they found was, when they arrived at some of those cities, they didn't have to say anything because the cities had already heard from Thessalonians. They had already seen what was happening there. They had already met people in the course of everyday life from the Thessalonian church who had shared the gospel with them. And Paul and Silas arrived there and said, Job done. The gospel's been proclaimed in this place because of this fledgling church. What were these people reporting? Well, verse 9 tells us they were reporting concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. In other words, people from other cities saw how the Thessalonians received the preacher and received preaching and how they responded to it and how they loved it and how they grew under it and they they did everything they could to imitate it. And then they, they carried it out in their everyday lives. And, and, and others saw that, but they also saw this. 
They saw how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Don't underestimate the power of a changed life in your evangelism. As God sees what, as, as others see what God has done for you, that is a powerful witness to the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had turned from idols. They were repentant people. It would not be said of those Thessalonian Christians, they're just like the world except for a few hours on Sunday morning. No, the gospel had radically changed them. And they were willing to talk about it and they, their example also spoke volumes. And what else did they do? Well, they waited, verse 10, for Jesus from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know, the Bible tells us that this is one of the marks of the gospel, one of the marks of the Holy Spirit. Paul puts it this way in Titus 2. He says, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, turning from idols to serve the living God, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Then it says this, the grace of God has appeared, and the other thing it trains us to do is waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Does this characterize your life? Would anyone who knows you know this to be true of you? Oh, she's someone who's turned away from her past sins and is endeavoring to walk according to the pattern of God's Word and is hopeful in looking forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ. You know, it's striking, isn't it? Because the Bible always maintains that Christians should look forward with great confidence to Jesus coming. And the Bible tells us that there will be many in the last days who who say, where is this promise of His coming? They lose their hope. They lose their confidence. But a characteristic of a living church is maintaining that confidence in the return of Christ. Well, let me give some further implications of this as we think about how this applies to church life today. I mentioned this at the beginning, but there's no mention here of numbers. Uh, There's no mention of money, financial blessing or success. We're undertaking acts of service. We know that. They They were engaged in the work of missions. We know that. That's not the primary mark that Paul looks to. It's not that he talks about numbers or money. I'll also point out this, there's an understanding, a deep understanding, that, that theological grounding, the grounding in the Scriptures and in the teaching of the Bible, produces results. There's a recognition that training in doctrine is vital. There's a clear affirmation here that, that what we need to be about as churches is a word-based ministry. A ministry of the preaching of the Word and the, the visible sacraments of God's Word that He gives to us. I'll also mention this. It's hard to miss the fact that all of this from beginning to end in the life of this church and in the life of these Christians is a work of God. Notice how often he mentions the work specifically of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, they're the church in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, the work was in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, they are imitators of the Lord. Verse 8, the word of the Lord goes forth. Verse 10, they are waiting 
for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this the substance of your faith? Do you know the Jesus who governs this whole chapter and is threaded through almost everything the Apostle Paul says? You know, the Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ offers Himself to all who would come to Him in repentance and faith. Jesus says, and I can say to you confidently in His name, whoever comes to Me, I will not cast out and I will raise Him up on the last day. The Bible says there is a day of judgment coming. Jesus Christ is the one appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. To Him all men must give an account. But then He goes on to say this, He offers forgiveness of sins to those who believe in His name. And if you're not united to Christ, and if the truths about Jesus that Paul understands are the foundation of this church, are not real to you, and certainly the primary thing you need to be confronted with is to come to Jesus, turning away from your sins, and turning to Him in faith. And for those who are believers, notice that everything moves out from the central truth that we are in Christ. Everything that Paul describes about this church is centered in Christ and His Word. He, by the Holy Spirit, is at work through His Word to His church. Serving Jesus Christ as the Lord of the church will transform everything. Our confession of faith puts it this way. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. And to serve Christ as the head of the church and to listen to His Word as He governs His church through His Word is a mark of a church that is not dead but is surely alive. Let's pray together. Our Father, once again, we are grateful to You for Your Word. What a gift it is to us. You govern Your church by Your Word. Father, transform us, we pray. Cause us to conform to the image of Christ by Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen.